This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. And in this episode, I'm joined by Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Green, who are senior lecturers and research scholars at Yale. They teach in the master's program in religion and ecology and co-direct the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. Thank you for being with me today. Mary Evelyn, John, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Very good to be with you, Eva. Our topic today is religion and ecology. That is how different religions relate to nature and how they address modern environmental challenges. But before we begin, I would like to ask you a personal question. What brought you to study religions in the first place at the start of your career? And what were your inner questions to which you wanted to find answers? Yes, this is... uh a question that's important to understand where these voices are coming from. I uh, come from uh, North Dakota, which is a a northern state in the United States near the Canadian border. And that lovely northern plains then is in my background. And I come from a hunting family. My family was uh, very uh, respectful of the game that we hunted and also a religious family, a Roman Catholic family. My uh, mother's side uh, came out of Bessarabia and my father's side out of the Irish uh, context. So I have that mixed heritage and uh, this sense of uh, being very close to the natural world was uh, instrumental in my religious formation. I went to a Benedictine school in the nearby state of Minnesota and got an education then in further uh, theological and also historical. So I double majored in religion and history, but that sense of a religious family and the natural world, and then also academic training has really shaped my thinking. So similarly, we all are influenced by our families, aren't we? And I grew up in around the New York area, born in New York City and um, grew up with a very progressive sense that religion and social justice were interlinked. And I was very involved in civil rights movement in the 60s, the anti-Vietnam War and so on, Um, peace movements. All of that shaped my life. I went to college in Washington, DC where that was absolutely central. And so the social justice um, bit actually moves towards eco-justice in this conversation. But I went to Japan Um, actually with disillusionment uh, when Nixon was elected and and so on. Um, And I went there to teach at a college, but I also began to study the Asian religions. I began with Buddhism, of course, and Shinto and and so on, did a lot of Zen practice. This was in 73, 74. Then I traveled all through Asia on my way home. And I became increasingly interested as I arrived at home in Confucianism, uh, which maybe we'll speak about a little bit here. But I think the central thing perhaps for both of us, the influence for the study of religion was mm-hmm. Thomas Berry, yeah. who was a historian of religion at Fordham University. And he was a incredible um, historian, but also a person who understood the spiritual dimensions of these religions and their relevance for today, especially for the ecological crisis um, that we're that we're facing. That's really interesting. So you bring together the Western and the Eastern traditions in your collaborative research. 
Well, the Asian religions, yes, have been absolutely central. And I spent, you know, almost 10 years at Columbia studying them and um, doing language studies and historical studies. So, but the Asian religions have so much to offer this conversation, as do the indigenous traditions. Which... Yeah, it was remarkable. In my youth, I learned very little, if anything, about the American Indian, Native American, First Nations in my region. But when I studied with Thomas Berry, this uh, uh, focus on indigenous people became so important because of that richness of insight that they have into their local bioregions. Another general question I would like to ask you is about the role of religion in contemporary society, which is mostly secularized. So how does religion fit into this secularized mindset? Well, I think in, in the West, there's a lot of secularization, you know, across Europe and in certain parts of the US and, and so on, maybe even you could say Japan, but 85% of the world's people, um, according to Pew Research and so on, claim that they are religious in certain ways. I mean, India is a massively religious country. There's over a billion Hindus. There's uh, almost 2 billion Muslims now. There's 2 billion Catholics, 2 billion Christians and so on. So I, I wouldn't say that religion has disappeared by any means. But I think this question, how strong is it, secularization, um, there are many movements that are moving between these. It's, it's not just black and white, secular or religious. And that's what's, I think, very interesting because there's many nature-based spiritualities, as I'm sure you're well aware, eco-spiritualities, eco-feminism, creation-centered spiritualities, which are drawing on indigenous traditions, but um, writings of, of nature writers, poetry, uh, and so on. And I think even in the uh, Asian religions, for example, the Dalai Lama, the leading Tibetan Buddhist um, spiritual leader, you know, he, he speaks about rethinking beyond religion is the title of one of his books, uh, rethinking secularism. And he's been advocating for many years for secular ethics. Uh, beyond even religious ethics. So that's a hugely important movement. And of course, he has a vast following. And Du Wei Ming, one of the great spokespersons for Confucianism, who we worked with at Harvard and then went back to Beijing to the, uh, set up um, an institute there, of, he, he speaks of uh, Confucianism as, as spiritual humanism. Um, so he's trying to combine this notion of, of humanism, but with a spiritual focus. So not black and white, many movements, and even religious leaders uh, who are calling on this kind of fusion of secularization and religious sensibilities. But the Dalai Lama, even beyond that. And I sense uh, your question is so appropriate mm -hmm. for people like the two of us who are involved in the study of religion. It's a perennial question. What is religion or what's the nature of religion? And one of these uh, striking moments occurs when in our study where we have a interest in environmental issues is the, the charge that's made against many of the so-called Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that they have this uh, orientation, a transcendent orientation away from material reality. And yet when you look within these traditions, there's a number of spiritual points of engagement or the touch with the natural world. So 
for us, the question began to surface, what do we mean by religion? In South Asia, is it all interiority or do they also touch the material world? So we found ourselves uh, questioning that the sense of not simply a definition, but what is it that religion is providing to communities? And gradually these points began to surface, orienting, grounding, nurturing, and transforming. And so rather than exclusive definitions, rather they're like approaches, orienting a sense of direction in life and even having elemental connection to air or the sense of breath, grounding and soils. And it's a very interesting set of questions then. How does religion ground people in the place where they're at? And nurturing, I do not know a religion that doesn't put food on the table. And so it's an interesting way to approach that question of religion from that. And finally, transforming, I think this is a bridge to kind of typical definitions of religion, where you have this sense of the, the uh, element or fundamental transformations in life. And just finally, from my standpoint, Jürgen Habermas is provided some very interesting reflections where he raises the question that religion and secular do not seem so separate or divided in his reflections, but rather many of these are entangled in one another and that the secular dimension has certain meaningful or religious-like uh, dimensions. So I think orienting, grounding, nurturing, transforming also provide ways of thinking about the secular world too. Yeah, one of our, our keen interests, just briefly to footnote that, is to expand the idea of what is religion. And that's why John is, is mentioning these four terms uh, that we have, you know, orienting to heavens or cosmos and grounding in earth systems and nurturing, uh, again, with food, wine, water, and transforming with the moral energy um, to contribute to our society in ways that are efficacious. So we've found that our students uh, really love that broader definition of religion. They can, they can enter into that. Yes, I really find it uh, liberating and uh, very relevant to our time because, yeah, we, uh, as human beings, we need uh, to be grounded in something material, uh, as you mentioned, and, uh, but material is just not enough. We need that higher purpose that uh, mm. connects us to uh, something else. And um, mm, that's what I found uh, very interesting when I was uh, watching your course and reading your materials. So you, you are talking extensively about rituals and so that's something you touched upon uh, just now. Uh, and that's how you uh, define religious ecology. Could you expand more on that? So what is religious ecology? We had occasion to put together a, a, a book uh, called Ecology and Religion with a science-oriented press. So they interesting that they asked us to reverse the religion and ecology and put ecology first. And this uh, activated in us... So, a way of thinking again about religious traditions and the ways in which religions have uh, related to the natural world around them. And so religious ecology surfaced for us as a phrase that might capture some of this uh, human earth relationships because the religions are often reduced to their human human and you know that ethical exchange or the human divine, the transcendent exchange. We wanted to foreground the human earth. So religious ecology came out of our, 
our concerns as scholars to focus on these relationships. But as soon as we had articulated that understanding for ourselves, it became evident that the way people think about the world, their worldview, their cosmology, their understanding of the emergence of the world and its ongoing development is, is it's entangled with the way they relate to matter or to the world around them. So if religious ecology is one side of the coin of our human earth relations, the other side is religious cosmologies. So we find them, they're interwoven with one another and religious ecology, from my own personal studies with indigenous people, I found the word religion especially fell short because religion has this sense of being separated out from, as we talked earlier, of the secular world. Whereas for most indigenous people that I've become aware of, the sense of religious ecology, their, relate, their meaningful relationship with the world around them is totally woven not only into their worldview, but the way they relate in their utilitarian or pragmatic activities. So the term lifeway has become very important for me to trying to describe this weave of the religious into the, the day-to-day -day -day life. And one uh, example that I find uh, very clear in a ceremonial among the Northern Plains people where I study, there's the English word Sundance, where we talk about a major ceremonial in the Northern Plains, which is actually among the different peoples, Siouan peoples or um, uh, the Cheyenne people, so forth. These uh, ceremonials are quite different. They may all focus on the sun, but they're differently performed. So again, the sense of difference among people, different life ways, but on the Northern Plains, all of them have buffalo related to the sun. And the stories then also talk about buffalo and the emergence of the human in relationship to the sun. They're lovely stories that hold these deep values. But again, the, the sense, the idea of food and uh, the relationship with the sun, a religious cosmology. So uh, the, the point that we've been trying to uncover finally with these two terms, religious ecology and religious cosmology, is the entanglement of ways of thinking and ways of acting in the world that ground us in meaning and also a sense of going forward with the confidence. Yeah, and I think it brings us back even to this orienting and grounding, um, nurturing, transforming. But, you know, cosmovisions, of course, for indigenous peoples have been central to their life ways and that the cosmovision um, grounds them in these rituals of the earth and deep respect for the earth. And, you know, that also leads to what's now being called, especially in Latin America and elsewhere, a cosmopolitics. So it's, you know, it's a vision of the world and its emergence, its creation stories and so on, but with profound implications for how one lives a life responsibly and in community. So, you know, I think what we're trying to recover with religious ecology and religious cosmology, because both are needed, is a sense that we live in a sacred universe. And that is something you know, we have uh, forgotten, destroyed, uh, ignored. And we also live in an earth community, which includes the plants, the animals, the fish, the birds, the incredible biodiversity of life. And it's so we're trying to move from a human-centered 
world view of, of modernity and sometimes hyper individualism to resituate ourselves uh, within the larger community, the earth community of life and the, the solar community of, of stars and galaxies and an unfolding universe, which is dynamic, creative, uh, and so on. So we could say a lot more about that, but that's the idea of religious ecology and religious cosmology. And this is, in terms of religious studies, relatively new, um, but mm -hmm. cultural anthropologists and others studying indigenous peoples, et cetera, have understood this for a long time. So we don't claim you know, originality, but just that we're trying to evoke a broader uh, sensibility here. And um, your words made me think uh, about uh, space exploration. So you mentioned cosmology and that uh, connection with uh, transcendent spirit. Um, in your opinion, why do you think uh, people want to go into space? Uh, is it uh, a search for that transcendence? No, I think that's a, a helpful perspective. The the science fiction world also engenders in us a, a feeling of the future or that we have a confidence in that future also. And the concern that uh, our teacher Thomas Berry would raise that uh, space exploration is uh, grows out of our religious cosmology that's embedded in the human family but it also ha has the, uh, the unfortunate outcome that we have not reflected sufficiently on our own relationships with Earth, and yet we yearn to go into outer space. And so he would reflect upon the pathologies that we have imposed upon the Earth. We now are projecting out into space where there's no way we can travel out into space without creating small Earths in which to travel. And that we lack sufficient reflection upon that very point we're dependent upon that basic elemental relationship with the material world. And so he wanted to, uh, to reflect upon that deep relationship before we simply shot out into space. Yeah, I, you know, there's so many things to talk about here, but um, of course it's exciting, the Hubble telescope and the new uh, <clears throat> telescope that's just been launched and what it's giving us. Um, but if it awakens awe and wonder, beauty, complexity, that's fantastic. These are spiritual um, affects. Uh, but I think I'm not actually talking about transcendence that leaves the earth behind. The traditions that I study, especially of Asia, the Buddhist, Taoist, Confucian traditions are very much about a continuity of being that includes cosmos, earth, and human as one dynamic unfolding, not something that is outside uh, our earth systems or transcendent too. And even there's a term imminent transcendence, but not a radical break. So I just want to, you know, put that back into the equation. These have influenced millions of people over, <laughs> over history. So mm -hmm. it's a very exciting uh, cosmovision. Now let's come back to Earth and talk about uh, the efforts that different religions and religious traditions are taking to save the environment. What do you think is their potential to impact the environmental situation today? Well, 
there's a lot of examples on our website. We have a very comprehensive website of statements of the different world religions, uh, passages from scriptures, uh, affirmations of engaged projects that we like to speak about, and as well as literature that's been annotated, books and articles. But the engaged projects, um, there literally are hundreds from the different world's religions now. If we take Buddhism, there's uh, tree protection in Southeast Asia, Buddhist monks ordaining trees. It's been going on for a number of decades to preserve their forests. In Hinduism, there's tree planting um, that started up in the Himalaya region with women hugging trees, the Chipko movement. But many, many temples now have uh, tree seedlings offered as prasad um, to the uh, religious practitioners who, who plant trees. And one could go on and on about forest work uh, and restoration projects of, of religious communities, which include um, restoring fisheries, restoring wetlands and things along these, these lines. So, and then there's many, many other projects of like interfaith power and light, which is encouraging communities, <clears throat> mosques and temples and churches to measure their carbon footprint uh, and so on and so forth. So if you, if the listeners look on the engaged projects, they'll find many exciting things that they can um, learn from and replicate, hopefully. And I would echo Mary Evelyn's emphasis upon the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology website. It's a very rich website and those statements of engaged projects are uh, very helpful for understanding how religious environmentalism is being implemented on the ground. Uh, just as a final comment, I, I find it interesting that when people consider this religion and ecology project, they, they often move quite quickly into the belief or faith or the, the sense of uh, conceptual ideas in religions. And they see that as the focus. And whether it is the case or not, many scholars are beginning to raise the question that ideology or belief is not driving us so much as the gravity of our practices. And I find that very interesting in terms of the religions themselves, that when they make the effort to connect their religious tradition into environmental concern, they, uh, they move very quickly past the religious ideas and into, they want to know what's happening on the ground. And then they return to the ideas and it, it enriches what it is that they find themselves practicing. So for me, this is a, a very encouraging. For example, in the South Asian idea, there's this uh, idea of bhakti, which in the early engagement with religions in India was thought to be a much inferior, a much less a developed form, less civilized form of religion than the high Upanishadic uh, interior oneness of the world. But in fact, bhakti now has a major environmental component to it because bhakti is a love. It's the devotional dimension. And it's this deep affect that people are beginning to connect back to material reality in the natural world, especially a deep loving relationship. People are exploring that in religious traditions now. That's really interesting because it relates to what you mentioned earlier. Religions are very adaptable and they are addressing our concerns of today, the challenges of the modern world. And it is important for people to be aware of that. Yes, 
I'd just like to put a footnote to that because we like to generally start any discussion by saying, we recognize that religions have their problems historically and at present, but they have their promise. And those of us involved with civil rights and the anti-Vietnam War, the religious communities came on board very early to say, this is morally problematic. And that's what we're trying to suggest here that there's a moral and spiritual issue about how we treat the environment. And that's why these engaged projects, John's trying to suggest that ideas and praxis, uh, theory and action go together. So everything we're doing is um, trying to suggest that each of the religions has something to contribute, but also religions in dialogue. And I just wanna give mm. one example in the Middle East, there's a wonderful eco-peace Middle East uh, group that's working on the preservation and renewal of the Jordan River and water issues throughout the region. And it includes um, Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians um, working on this and they're offering a blue green new deal. Yeah. So this is collaborative work of immense proportions of practicality, but also in inspired uh, by this sense of water is special, is sacred and is a, a part of the need for all humans and all life forms. From your course, I also learned that uh, some religions and religious statements have been an inspiration for uh, legal documents uh, relating to the protection of the environment, namely the climate agreement and the US sustainable development goals adopted in 2015. And for them, uh, the inspiration was the papal encyclical released uh, the same year. Could you talk more about that? Well, let me just answer the latter part. There's many statements that support the papal encyclical, Laudato Si, Care for Our Common Home, released in June 2015. And the Pope had been planning this for years and years, consulting many, many people, theologians and scientists. And the document begins with the science of the environment and climate change and so on. And it moves um, to references, uh, biblical references and others, but it moves to a whole chapter on eco-spirituality and eco-action. Um, but I wanna just say his, one of his uh, major objectives in the timing was to be able to affect two, among other things, um, two major gatherings. One was at the United Nations in September 2015, when he came to speak there. And right after his speech, the uh, sustainable development goals were passed that all the world needed to, uh, to work on what is sustainability in these particular forms. So that was part of the inspiration for sustainability goals, but sustainable development goals and then, of course, the Paris uh, conference was uh, such a push for nations to come together. And he also wanted his uh, encyclical to be part of the timing of that. And we have a, a lawyer who's part of our School of the Environment, his office is near us. And after um, he came back from Paris and we had a uh, panel on the Paris Agreement, uh, he spoke first and I spoke after him, but he held up the encyclical and said, this is why we got an agreement in Paris, because that moral spiritual perspective uh, was present, was understood, not of course across the board, but it had its efficacious, um, efficaciousness. 
And John might want to speak about the well, panelists. This, yeah. uh, this Pope, as we all know, is a rather extraordinary person, if only because he has, like uh, his namesake, Francis of Assisi, a, an obvious humility. And he turns uh, towards the poor and the impoverished with an open ear. And that's a remarkable for a leader on the stage. But what I find especially interesting about Laudato Si is that it's a comprehensible document. Mm -hmm. And he wrote it for the earth community, the, the varieties of human communities around rather than simply Roman Catholics. And in the document, Mary Evelyn very cogently mentions Unlike earlier encyclicals, which are teaching documents within the Catholic tradition, not only was this addressed to the larger earth community, it begins with science uh, and understanding of the science of, of the environmental concern, and it moves towards integral ecology. And this is a basic point of that document. It's trying to bring, bring together social justice with ecological justice. And this is uh, relatively new in the human community where we have expanded our ethical sense from simply human-human relations into human-earth relations. And the human divine becomes the bridging character in the document itself where he brings forward even a cosmology. I would find it actually an inadequate cosmology, but nonetheless, it's, a, it's the Roman Catholic medieval cosmology of the divine creation, the imparting of the souls. And he brings this very skillfully to connect a concern for the poor. The cry of the earth and the cry of the poor is at the heart of this document. Leonardo Boff, the Brazilian liberation theologian, uh, used that title to, for a book. Uh, and uh, that's a major influence on Francis in this document. So just to conclude, I, I think integral ecology at the heart of this document is, is what makes it such a successful statement. Yeah, I'm, just a footnote, Bill McKibben, one of the most influential environmentalists in this country and early writer on climate change and so on, said when he came and talked here at Yale and he's a good friend, he said, Mary Evelyn and John, Laudato Si, and he said this in front of students, is the most important document of the 21st century because of its clarity addressed to the whole human community and this integration of social and ecological justice. So that's a very strong statement from a leading environmentalist and many others have agreed with that as well. What I find especially interesting is the connection between science and religion that you just mentioned in uh, relation to the papal encyclical. These two uh, fields have been apart for a long time and now they are coming together and collaborate. So how uh, can this symbiosis happen? Well, it's a great question and it's probably one of the most important to be honest because um, many scientists thought that their facts and their models and their reports would change uh, human understanding and, and human action on climate, on biodiversity, pollution, uh, many environmental issues. But the fact of the matter is, is that facts don't change minds and hearts necessarily, even though it's absolutely essential. So we like to say science and policy economics and technology necessary but not sufficient and the religious values need to come into play here. 
Now, scientists are beginning to understand that, but even when we did our series of conferences at Harvard in the mid 90s on all the world's religions, what were their views of nature? What were their religious ecologies and cosmologies? We did have scientists from the very beginning um, say this is absolutely critical. People like Edward Wilson, E.O. Wilson, a major scientist at Harvard, came to many of the conferences and really supported the need for religious communities to be part of this uh, effort toward environmental protection and so on. And Tom Lovejoy, um, who founded the word biodiversity, a close friend of our School of the Environment here at Yale, um, also was a, a friend of this work and this movement. Both of them actually died in December just at Christmas time, but they were great proponents of biodiversity because of the beauty, awe, and wonder of nature. And that's what we're trying to evoke from both um, religious, spiritual, ethical, humanists, and scientists themselves are moved by a holism of ecology, of this incredible complexity. And when they share that, um, it lights all of us up. So we're calling for this holistic ecology that has a scientific basis and a religious spiritual basis to be something that, that brings us together. And finally, there are organizations here in the States that uh, like Ecological Society of America, 10,000 scientists who are very much supporting this kind of dialogue and programs and discussions. And the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is a worldwide organization, um, that publishes the magazine Science, they too have a dialogue for science and religion, uh, some of it focused on this issue. So we do have partners and um, more hopefully is emerging on the horizon. I think it's interesting also that uh, in our, our earlier remarks, we uh, gave forward a, an effort to rethink religion as orienting, grounding, nurturing, and transforming and those terms, while not exclusively em emphasizing the rational dimension of the human, they certainly bring to the foreground the senses and this uh, capacity of the human to engage, to touch the world and to be nurtured by the world and to feel this sensing relationship with the world. And uh, we're, we're reflecting now, we begin to think about how the sciences in their enlightenment capacity distanced us from the world. And that demystification de, uh, de or the disenchantment with the world is something uh, the religions have participated in a re-enchantment, a recovery of a deep affect for the world, rather than simply this distancing from the world and analyzing it in terms of facts and data and a quantitative relationship. We're after, again, not simply a, a qualitative, we want to even begin to understand the dimensions of the quality of our relationship with the world. So the um, recovery of a re-enchanting and the religions as simply one way, because I think the arts, literature, their modes of, of sent, ways of sensing the world, but religion is certainly one of them. I think here we have to talk about different ways of exploring the world through logic, that is science, and through senses and the connection with the transcendent, that is religion and art. 
And all these ways are interrelated. We can't separate one from another. Yes. Some of the very interesting collect, uh, collection of biographical statements have been those that have asked science scientists, how did you become interested in science? Why did you turn to... And the answers sometimes are so rich about the youthful exploration of the world. Another aspect that I find really interesting in your course is uh, the connection between uh, the rights of indigenous people and the state uh, of the environment. Uh, where these rights are respected, uh, the environment is uh, in a better condition because uh, many ind uh, indigenous people see nature as a precious gift and uh, treat it accordingly. Could you give some specific examples of that? Perhaps one of the most interesting developments in human relations with the earth in the late 20th century has been the reemergence of indigenous voices. One way of understanding how this uh, reemergence has taken place is understanding how uh, around the planet there, have, there are these hot spots where variety of life or biodiversity is especially profligate, is especially rich. And typically, those biodiverse hotspots overlap with the areas of indigenous people. And so the world community has become very aware that indigenous people, having lived in relationship with their local bioregions for centuries, sometimes millennia, literally thousands of years in these areas, they have lived in a sustainable relationship with the surrounding world. So this environmental realization, I think, has had real traction in bringing forward another issue which is just as important, the sovereignty or the voices of indigenous peoples for survival. We know that indigenous people have been oppressed, removed, in many instances, even uh, experienced genocidal activities to remove them. And so the, the fact that Native peoples have survived and that they are raising their voices now in, in an effort to protect what they see as their relatives in the natural world. And this is such an interesting point. The um, uh, demonstrations in, South, in North Dakota in the United States, uh, and now in Canada, we have something similar with the Wet'suwet'en people formerly the Hunkpapa or Suan people in North Dakota, they raised the question of uh, environmental activism to stop a pipeline from going under the Missouri River. And they raised it as an effort to protect the water from what they perceived as the eventual leaking of this pipe, the endangering of the relationship of the people and water. So here are an indigenous people, and I think this is happening in many instances, where these indigenous people are recovering their voice, their sovereignty, to protect the land, their relationship with relatives in the land, water as a relative. And this is a rather remarkable uh, environmental uh, activism that Native people are bringing forth. Now, uh, preserving the environment is... Uh 
our common challenge and uh, that requires joint efforts on all levels political economic uh, cultural and religious of course that is why interreligious dialogue is is very important uh, one of the forums for this interreligious dialogue is the parliament of world religions that was revived in 1993. How influential is this organization and what role does it play in interreligious dialogue? Well, the Parliament of World Religions uh, that was revived in 1993 after 100 years, it meets every several years, every four to five years. Um, and I think the these meetings are inspiring for people. They're ways of networking, meeting people from all over the world, Even the last one that was done online, um, I think, was, was very effective. Um, there's also, like everything, you know, problems and promise. Um, it's a very difficult thing to fund this and keep staff going and so on. So in between the actual parliaments, while there are some activities, it's not like what a, a teaching institution could do to sustain um, classes or workshops and so on. So I think overall, progress has been made on tolerance, on understanding, and so on. But one of the things that we've been trying to um, assist the parliament with over these years, since 1993, is to um, help seed yeast uh, the environmental issues. Because it's all well and good to say we tolerate um, Jewish and Christian dialogue or Buddhist and uh, Taoist or Hindu Muslim, but we need to focus Um, our interreligious conversations and activities need to focus on the future of the planet. And that has finally come into play. As I said, we've been to many of them in, in Barcelona and in, in Melbourne and so on. And it was probably in Melbourne um, that this began to have traction and then up in Toronto uh, about five years ago. And that has been a great boost to the energy and focus of the parliament. There's a climate task force Um, working on climate issues. And finally, um, the parliament, along with the United Nations Environment Program, Faith for Earth, that we're working with as well, and the forum, we, we helped create a new book called Faith for Earth. And that is online, it's available, it has both science, um, policy, and um, short statements from the different world's religions. So we recommend that um, as something that came out of the Parliament mm. and United Nations Environment Program and our own forum on religion and ecology. Along with Mary Evelyn's emphasis on the Parliament of World Religions as a foregrounding now global environmental ethics, I, I see the Parliament as a very interesting study in a emergence uh, and using an idea which I think is, is uh, familiar to Russian peoples. The, the sense of cosmology or the cosmic dimension of the human, and that our ethics have been so anthropocentric or human-oriented. And the parliament, I think, is a good example of its human-oriented or origins, its beginning moment. And it progressively shows, as it moves into the present, an increasing anthropocosmic orientation. It is beginning to reflect upon human relationships to the larger emergence of the human in relationship to earth and cosmological systems. 
Absolutely. This anthropocosmic connection is at the core of uh, human existence. And that uh, brings us to our last question. And actually, uh, it's uh, a question I will be asking all my guests. Uh, it relates to the uh, title of this podcast, Being Modern and Being Human. What does it mean to you, being modern and being human today? Yes, I'm uh, aware of the wonderful work of the artist uh, Frederick Frank. Uh, he was at the first, uh, the second Vatican Council in the 1960s, and his uh, drawings are so charming. At the end of his life, he did a short book where he solicited uh, reflections on being human. So it was a similar question that he was asking. And uh, in those reflections, I could see that the respondents were beginning to see the embodiment issue, that the sense of modernity and technology were drawing people away from our human earth relations. And that uh, Frederick Frank in his art and in his questioning was asking us to reconsider the entanglement or the embeddedness of our bodies within the earth itself. So, Modernity has this orientation towards, uh, at least as I see it, towards technology and the separation. But the human, the modern human, to be modern and to be human, calls us back into these relationships of uh, embodied reality. Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, and I would just say very simply, um, I think that the recovery of our cosmological grounding um, and the sense that we are, are part of, of uh, a larger cosmology, a part of a universe story. Um, this is why we also did Journey of the Universe and that that is something that um, is a film, a book, a series of conversations to show our connection to this huge evolutionary project, a process of 14 billion years of unfolding. Uh, of universe and earth time. So that's part of this conjunction of the religions, but also science um, in awakening our sense of where we belong, why are we here and what can we contribute to the future of life? Uh, so that sense of our cosmological being, our earth being and our human being nested into the larger forces of, of life and what uh, helped the emergence of life here on the planet. That's how I think of being modern and being human. Mary Evelyn, John, thank you so much for this inspiring conversation. And I hope it will help our listeners find new spiritual paths in their lives. Thank you very, very much. This was the third episode of Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. If you like the podcast, feel free to rate it or leave a review on one of your favorite platforms and share it with friends and family. And of course, uh, feel free to drop me a line if you want to suggest uh, new guests uh, for our future episodes. Thank you. Thank you for listening.